I think the Appalachian Trail is awesome. Like, there's no doubt about it. But, like, you're going to learn a lot about yourself. Mm -hmm. And you're going to learn a lot about trail culture. But how much are you really going to learn about the United States in this greater context? It's, it's a form of escapism. And that's sometimes exactly what we need is to escape uh, what's going on outside of our front door. But for me personally, like, I needed to explore something a lot deeper than just myself and just the physical capabilities of something like that. So, I mean, I don't know what the benefit is, um, but I know that there is a benefit to stepping outside of our comfort zones and looking people in the eye. And, and I think it works both directions. I think that it uh, makes those people feel more human. You know, when you're sleeping on the street in the middle of uh, downtown L.A., and you, you can feel less and less like a human. And it makes you and me feel more human as well and tap into this empathy that I think can go a really long way in, our, yeah. in this time in our society and um, something that perhaps we're losing a little bit and, and it's a good way to, to kind of gain it back a little. That's Ricky Gates this week on The Ritual Podcast. The Rich Roll Podcast. Greetings, bipedal humanoids. My name is Rich Roll. This is my podcast. Welcome or welcome back. My guest today is just a uniquely extraordinary human being. His name is Ricky Gates. And although you may have heard of him or know of him as an ultra runner, I would characterize him as much more of an artist, a conceptual artist that fuses endurance running and adventure with film, photography, and the written word to express a very distinct point of view that uh, I would describe as humanist. After nearly a decade competing on the national and international mountain trail and ultra running circuits, Ricky took his love for ultra endurance, for storytelling, and for photography and essentially fuse them together to create an ongoing series of project-based, essentially performance art runs that have included a run across America and the accompanying feature film called Transamericana that chronicles it. And the project he is perhaps best known for, Ricky ran every single street in San Francisco, a 1,300-mile undertaking that involved running 30 miles every day for 46 days, along the way logging 150,000 feet of elevation gain and meeting countless fascinating people along the way. Uh, that is all depicted in a short documentary produced by Solomon called Every Single Street, and I'll link that up in the show notes as well. In addition, Ricky hosts adventure running retreats called Run Bus Run and Hut Run Hut, which he will explain today, and has authored a new book about his transcontinental run entitled Cross Country, which comes out April 14th. I really love this guy. I got a whole lot more I want to tell you about Ricky before we get into it, but first... We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel, but what you wear isn't just clothes. It is without a doubt, technology. Technology that can make or break 
a performance. And I can tell you, after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor fit, built to move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in fleet foot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team from increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by a very exciting brand new sponsor, Go Brewing. I am sober. I don't drink. And I devoted so many episodes of this podcast to the unreal benefits of an alcohol-free lifestyle. Why? Because even if you don't have issues with booze and suds, no amount of alcohol is good for you. At a minimum, it wreaks havoc on your sleep and produces a hangover that destroys your energy, your mood, and your focus. At worst, it turns your whole life upside down. But no longer does that mean you have to break up with your favorite brew because my pals at Go Brewing are making all your favorite brews, minus the alcohol, fewer calories, and more productive tomorrows. It's not every day that I get the privilege to witness the inception of a company collaborating with our podcast, but that's exactly what happened with Go Brewing. I'm gonna tell you this story. A few years back, I spoke at this event in Illinois, fittingly named Go, and it turns out that that very day catalyzed Joe, the founder, to start his own N.A. beer company, Go Brewing. I had no idea about any of this until I bumped into Joe at Jesse Itzler's Running Man event the other month in Georgia, and he shared this story with me. I savored his fare in all its varieties and deeply moved by the mission and what he shared with me and just impressed with the insane taste and quality of his alcohol-free concoctions, I wanted to help share the discovery. Made with natural ingredients faithful to traditional beer styles, Go Brewing has an impressive lineup of delicious, small-batch, craft, alcohol-free brews, all without added sugar or artificial processing. My favorite is their double IPA, not just another story, but basically you just really can't go wrong because everything they make is brewed to perfection, worthy of trying yourself, which you can now do at gobrewing.com. That's gobrewing.com and use the code RICHROLL for 15% off your first purchase. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem 
a problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support, and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple. Search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you. I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life in recovery is wonderful, and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. All right, Ricky Gates. So as you will soon find out, Ricky is just, he's just a beautiful, thoughtful, creative, loving, and very present human with a deep appreciation for people, a profound curiosity about the world, and and a poetic instinct for, for sharing his unique perspective. And today we cover it all from his Run Every Street in San Francisco project to his Run Across America and all the stories and uh, lessons that came out of those experiences. We talk about what fuels his passions, his devotion to a minimalist lifestyle, what it was like living in Antarctica, uh, why he does what he does, and and how he uses his talents to share a perspective and a vision for a better, more unified world. Super nice to meet you. Thank you for doing this. Thanks for having me. This is a pleasure. Yeah, you're you're super inspiring. Everything that you do uh, is. Um, Really incredible, and uh, it's a privilege and an honor to be able to talk to you about it and have you share a little bit about your journey and your experience. And I think when I think about you, um, obviously, I think about this incredibly talented ultra runner, but really uh, what you're about is so much more than that. And I think right now we can both agree that the country is very divided. Uh, there is a communication gap. There is this division that is separating us. And our ability to communicate has broken down. Our communities are fractured. And the path forward, the healthy path forward, is to try to find a way to bridge that gap, to try to improve the health of our communication, right? To, to unite around uh, our shared value systems and, and, and beliefs. And, and you've really leveraged um, you're running to try to promote this message. And I think it's beautiful. The adage of uh, you can't know the world unless you know your back your backyard. <laughs> I don't know who originally said that. Did you know who 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 is to whom is that quote attributable? To? I, I I know it wasn't me. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody said that, but yeah. you actually not only took it to heart, but put it into practice. And you're really um more of an artist than an athlete in my mind, like you have used this medium uh, of running great distances to paint this canvas of humanity in a really beautiful way. 
So thank you for that. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. And, you know, I, I knew about you for a long time and then really dived into what you were doing when you were when you were doing the San Francisco every single street thing. Um, and I knew that you had run uh, across America, but um, I didn't know that much about that until I started prepping for talking to you today. And you sent me a cut of the Transamerica um, film, which is really quite moving. So how did that come together? Uh, the film or the uh, well, the, let's, the trip itself. I mean, let's just talk. Mm. Let's talk about the trip, and then we can mm. kind of weave in the film. So the trip itself. Uh, two years ago, I ran across the country. I left on March first of twenty seventeen and finished on August first of twenty seventeen. So a five month trip. Mm -hmm. um, the idea behind it is that I've, you know, I've competed on. A national and international level. I've traveled all over the world uh, pursuing this this sport, this running, um, mountain running, trail running, ultra running. And I was just kind of getting to a point in my career where I needed to uh, I needed to explore what else uh, the sport really meant to me and what its potentials were. And that's kind of when I came to this realization that I knew so many more parts of the world than I do our own country. Mm -hmm. And uh, such a huge part of that, um, realizing, you know, as you just said, we have this breakdown in communication, you know, with this increase in in the the bubble effect, you know, it's becoming easier and easier to live within our own bubbles. Um, it just occurred to me that uh, such a huge problem of ours right now is that we're not talking to each other. Right. And what better way to do that, especially for someone in my position um, who can put in a lot of miles. I don't have the commitment of a family. Um, I've, I, you know, I don't have the commitment of a, of a, a, a nine to five job, a, uh -huh. a, a standard job per se. Um, what better way to really explore this than to, uh, to do something that I've always wanted to do, which is to do a really big uh, trek. And uh, how how many years in the making was this? I think that I could say that it was uh, almost ten years, fifteen years uh -huh. in the making. Um, but uh, you know, I when I was nineteen years old, I stopped going to college for a couple years. I one of my goals during those two years off was to. Uh, uh, to bike across the country. And so I saved up my money. I took the Greyhound bus up to Washington. I had this idea that I was going to bike around the entire United States, the circumference of the United States. I made it three days in and <laughs> thought that I had completely destroyed my knee. Uh -huh. um, and, you know, this is with a serious road bike with big gears and um, 60 or 70 pounds of gear with me. I completely destroyed myself almost immediately. So I packed up my bike, I sent it uh, to Colorado, and then I took my money and my time and went to Italy instead. Uh -huh. So that was 19, that was 18 years ago. Yeah, um, it's funny, like at the peak of your, you know, sort of physical powers as a young, strapping young man, you know, on a bike and you're, you make it three days. <laughs> totally, and, <laughs> and it's, it's like, just, uh, I mean, it's uh, the classic, uh, you know, you're, 
you know, I, I was just not mature enough to pursue something right. like that. And, mm-hmm. and I just went way overboard. So it's been in my head since I was 19. I read a book when, or, or if not earlier, I read a book, uh, A Walk Across America. Oh, when Peter I was Jenkins Totally, book. Yeah, yeah. When I was 17 or 18 or so. Uh-huh. And that really stuck in my head, just this man's ability to connect with people um, for no other reason than he's out there on foot uh, putting himself in a vulnerable yeah. position. Yeah, he really kind of put that type of expedition on the map. His son, Jedediah, is a, is a good friend. He's been on the podcast a couple of times. Yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Who's a, he's an amazing writer. If you haven't yeah. read his, his book, it's quite something. Yeah, and I, I haven't read that. I'll check it out. Um, so I'd been thinking about it for a while, and then very, like, the, the real planning um, I thought about, I would say, for a year to two years ahead of time. Mm-hmm. Like, if I'm going to do this... Like, how, how am I going to make it work for me? Um, how would I want, uh, like, it's not something that I anticipate doing twice. If you're just going to do this once, how are you going to make it worthwhile? And, and for me, that meant uh, really diving into what America is and what I am personally. Right. And planning that beforehand. And so that means, you know, looking at all, the, all of the history of, of the United States, how we... Uh, came to be who we are, um, you know, the, the this this westward expansion, this idea of manifest destiny, of disp- uh, you know, the, I call it the good, the bad, and the ugly. This this idea that uh, you know we um, created this country, um, but we also we did a lot of bad in the process. And mm-hmm. so, you know, how can I um, pursue a, a, a massive feat like this? and touch upon all of those things at the same time. How much did uh, political news and the 2000, 2016 election play into the urgency to finally do this thing? So I had the date set in my head um, before the elections. I don't, I don't know why I picked March 1st. I needed a, a round number. Um, uh-huh. So I went with, with that. Um, I knew that I was going to hit weather at some point. Uh, during during my trip, whether that be snow, rain, or extreme heat. Um, so I had the date planned before the election. And like uh, many of us, um, I think on both the right and the left, uh, I thought the election was going to go a different way. And then come November 8th, November 9th of, of 2016, uh, when it did go the way that it did, uh, I knew that it was going to be way more interesting yeah. than I had anticipated. Did that influence the route? Because you you make this decision to to spend a lot of time in the South, and you go through you know mostly red states over the course of the whole journey. Well, it didn't influence the route so much, um, but I dare you to try and find a route across the yeah. United States where you're not going through a lot of red territory, mm-hmm. and that's the nature of the country, and that's what I think a lot of us have learned over the past few years. Um, especially when we're starting to look at the electoral college and all of these things is, you know, the, uh, the center part of the, the country is huge. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, uh, you know, there's a lot of space in between towns, but there's, there's a lot of space in general, which, uh, accounts for a large population. Right. Um, so it didn't influence my route all that much, but I did know, uh, after the elections that it was going to be, 
really interesting. I was going to be, you know, I, I wanted to go through the South um, because I've spent very little time in the South. Um, I was raised by parents who didn't necessarily have a prejudice against the South, but there was not a lot of urgency to bring us there. Uh -huh. um, my mom was a hippie in the 1960s. Yeah. She's a hippie today in 2019. Um, and I think in the 1960s, he had this, uh, uh, this common dialogue going on that, that warned um, people from going to the South. Um, right. You know, you've got Easy Rider where, yeah. you know, you've got your protagonists uh, uh, and meeting their end there. And, mm -hmm. and that's just, just one of a, a few different stories. So. Right. So you just got married, right? I just got married yeah. two and a half weeks ago. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's very cool. You've been with Liz for like seven or eight years or something like that. Almost a decade Almost at this a point. Decade. Yeah. Wow. Mm -hmm. um, but at the inception of, of this run, my sense is, and you allude to this sort of, you, you comment on it, but you don't spend too much time talking about uh, the fact that you're kind of going through a, a bit of an existential crisis perhaps about your relationship, but perhaps about things greater that motivated you to kind of take a break from your relationship and, and carve out this time for yourself. So what was going on with you kind of mentally and emotionally going into the run? It's something like to this day that I don't know that I can answer entirely um, other than it just seemed like a trip to me. It seemed like a part of my life and a trip to me where I needed to be on my own. Uh -huh. And and I don't know really a better way to say that other than that. I just, it, I couldn't fathom really uh, thinking about anyone other than myself uh -huh. during this time. Yeah. In retrospect, I, I thought a lot about other people and especially Liz. Um, and so it's yeah it's it's a live and learn thing. I'm I'm glad that it uh, has turned out the way that it has, and and that I think that we both uh, learned a lot from from that break that we took. And uh, and yeah, it's it's uh, it was it was definitely a challenge. It was a challenge then, and and even looking back on it, it's it continues to be a challenge. Yeah. When you know when you um, put a little fracture in a relationship like that. Uh, you know, as as well as it as you can repair it, it's it's still there. Yeah. So it's it's something to for me for us to always think about, and for uh, me to be able to to tell other people as well. Right. You know, that's a something that you know when people are having issues with their relationships, um, our tendency is to go inward rather than outward, and and I don't think we really talk enough about uh, about mistakes that we've made or issues that we've had, and. Uh, you know, I think that that's really important for for me to put that out there. Right, and there's something about running and that solitude that accompanies it that gives you the space and the capacity to kind of wrestle with those things and and get clarity for yourself. I mean, you have there's a monologue in the in the film. I think it's after you've left Aspen and you're in the you're in the snow and the in the Rockies where you say, you know, look. Running was about competition for most of my life, measuring myself against others and a clock, but it's become a process of um, not just connecting with other humans, but a process of self-discovery. And that's like a huge theme in, in everything that you do and, and in this beautiful movie. Yeah, and I think that 
I think if most of us, most of us that do run or walk or bike or pursue something with consistency year after year, I think if we really look at what it's doing for us, I think that a lot of us will find the same things. Right. Um, and this is, this is something that I tell people, uh, and, and, you know, running is, has been my thing, but I, I don't think that's necessarily the thing for everybody. I think that right. knitting, knitting could be that thing, uh, crochet, uh, you know, badminton, like I, I, I just think for me, I chose this activity 20, over 20 years ago, 25 years ago, uh-huh. and I've stuck with it for 25 years. And, and when you stick with something for that long, whether it's, it's an activity or a person, you're going to continue to learn so much more about that, but also, and more importantly, you're going to learn so much more about yourself. And right. this, this thing just keeps changing and changing and changing. And it's that consistency that allows for that to, to happen. Right. Um, so lots of people have run across America. Yeah. Uh, I just had Ro- this guy, Robbie Ballinger, on the show who, who did it last year. He did it in like 75 days. Um, my friend Mike Posner just walked across America. But most people that do this do it with an RV and a lot of support. Um, that, that and that support tends to be off camera. Conveniently, yeah. But you you decide to do this unsupported, and um, for a vast majority of the entire expedition, it's just you with a very light backpack and a tarp and a ground cloth and a little bit of food, and basically that's it. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I've, I've been at this sport for quite a while. Um, I wouldn't say that I have a huge following, but I do have people that are paying attention to what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. And for me personally, it doesn't seem right to, uh, to put this project out there, uh, in a way that I don't think is accessible to a normal person. And, by that, I mean, I don't think most people can uh, pull together an RV and the funds uh-huh. uh, to pay for a person and gas and food for multiple people for months on end. Conversely, I do think that people, a lot of people, um, ideally, if you're if you're younger and you have the physical capability, can put together the funds and the time to uh, to do it in the same way that I did. Right. And maybe you're not doing. <laughs> it's yeah. funny because there, there's a there's a little bit of an irony in there because you're like, mm. I'm going to do this super extreme thing to show that how doable it is for everybody. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know? and maybe not everybody, but I I do believe, um, you know, how many people are doing the Appalachian Trail these right. days? You know, you've got several thousand people starting the Appalachian Trail these days. And I think the Appalachian Trail is awesome. Like, there's no doubt about it. But like, how much are you really going to learn? about, you're going to learn a lot about yourself mm-hmm. and you're going to learn a lot about trail culture, but how much are you really going to learn about the United States in this greater context? It's, it's a form of escapism. And that's sometimes exactly what we need is to escape, uh, what's going on outside of, outside of our front door. But for me personally, like I needed to, uh, explore something a lot deeper right. than, than just myself and just, uh, you know, the, the physical capabilities of something like that. So, um, so I, I set a, a budget for myself. I, I did a thousand dollars a month, um, $5,000 total for the five months. Wow. Um, I slept outside most nights. Uh, I'd, I'd get a hotel or a motel 
once once a week or once every 10 days. Uh, that increased uh, more towards like once every couple days towards the end as I started kind of losing it a little bit. Yeah. And simply needed to uh, go into a room and, and lock the door and turn the AC on and, and turn some mindless television on. Um, but for the most part, what I wanted to do was to, to put it out there that this is something that yeah. um, people can do and that there's alternatives to these, uh, to doing the Appalachian Trail or, or going to Europe for four months. Like you can just pack a very light backpack and, and see what's out there. And, uh-huh. and it's, it's really incredible when you, uh, you know, when people see that all you have is in your backpack and they ask you if you've got a gun, you know, to protect right. yourself and, and like, no, I don't have a gun. <laughs> um, to, you know, just putting yourself out there in a vulnerable position, the amount of warmth mm-hmm. and generosity that I experienced was, was something that I never could have anticipated in a million years. People yeah. giving me every last yeah. dollar from their wallet, yeah, yeah. you know, and there's the guy, what's his name? Jim Steele. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Gives you 80 bucks or 160 I said 180. It was, I, I said 80, it was 160. 160 right. It was $160 and and he the, wasn't taking no for an answer. No, it was amazing. It was, uh, and that's when I kind of realized, um, you know, that people in their own way want to uh, participate in this yeah. in this thing. Um, a few years ago, so this is kind of something that I think about, and uh, the best way for me to to tell this is is to talk about someone else running across the country. And that was Pete Kostalnik who did uh, across the country in 40, I'm going to say 44 days. It could have been a little quicker. Um, This is in 2016. So a year before or a few months before I did mine, Um, he did this and he was doing 60 to 70 miles a day for 44 right. days and broke the the record that had stood for unsupported he that was very supported that uh, was yeah, two or would, three I, rvs I with several people yeah it was a it was it was a big effort mm-hmm. on, for a lot of people and and he he's sure to give them credit as well yeah um but for me personally so i i was in wisconsin at the time and i saw that he was going through northern illinois and i got in my car and drove two and a half hours just to run with him for a few miles because it's like I just felt like it was seeing this mythical creature when someone's doing something like that and even now to this day like now that I've done this big journey like I still think it's a mythical creature you're it's like seeing a mountain lion or something and yeah yeah and so uh I I think that for me that's what it that's what it was for kind of when I came to realize that some people, when they, they wanted to give me money or just stop and talk, it was like, you know, it, it is something rare. Right. There's the one guy who, it looks like he turned his car around when he saw you and he got out and he's like, yeah. oh, my friend's going to freak out. I read yeah. about you, like when you crossed the state line or something like that. Yeah. So there was some awareness as you were passing through of yeah. what you were doing. Totally. In, in certain areas, I don't know why right. it was in certain areas. Yeah. It was Oklahoma and Arkansas where I received the most amount of mm. generosity and warmth. Um, and then when I got to California, ironically, it was, it was nothing. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's interesting just, like yeah. that. Like, I think what I appreciate most is, mm. is you know, there is a, there's a vein of humility and vulnerability that, that infuses, you know, this effort and the other things that you've done. And this... Transamericana journey um, is almost like this um, uh, performance art 
piece that is part de Tocqueville, part Henry David Thoreau. Like I'm going to light out on America and learn about democracy and connect with people to try to better understand them, better understand myself, and better understand, you know, what is required to unite us and bring us together. Totally. And, I, and yeah. you took your time. Yeah. Like the priority wasn't the running, the priority was the connection. Yeah. And, and the funniest thing that I encountered, or the most interesting thing that I encountered when I went across the country is that, like, I thought I would be talking politics all the time. Mm. And it never came up. It was just like, you when when you're doing something like that, when people see something like that, they don't want to ask you what your political right. views are. They want to ask you about like what you're doing, what you're seeing out there. And, 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 and it just becomes really incredible that so much of this stuff just kind of dissolves away. Um, and, and you realize that, uh, and I think I say the same thing in, in the movie coming out, uh, is that I think we're, I don't think so. I know. So we're way more similar than we are different. Yeah. It's, uh, I, th I think that we're 90% similar and 10% different and that 10% difference has become inflated so that we mm. think that it's 90%, but it's not. Right. It's exploited. Exactly. You know, and it's leveraged by the media mm -hmm. to further divide us. Totally. And, and, uh, you know, I, I subscribe to my own media and, and a lot that's uh, been brought to my attention over the past couple of years with talk of fake news and all of these things is is coming to terms with that the media that I pay attention to is also biased. Uh -huh. And and it's not just Fox News, like NPR is also biased. We've all got these biases and, and you know, we like to think that we're right about uh, our convictions, but the reality is, is that... Uh, you know, there's a million different paths out there. Yeah. And if you grew up in Kansas and on a farm in Kansas and, and you had that lifestyle and, uh, you know, there's, the, I, I just see their voting habits, their convictions as every bit as valid as mine. Mm -hmm. And that's probably the, the biggest thing that, that I gained from, from my run across the country is, is coming to terms with that. Yeah. Did it change your, your media diet in any way? Did it expand like what you expose yourself to or contract that? Or, you know, what is the lingering kind of long-term impact? Because this was a couple years ago. Yeah. So you've had time to reflect. Totally. Have some objectivity on it. Um, it, it has. Um, and let's see, how do I put this? It's, it's just made me pay attention to other forms of media and it doesn't necessarily, I don't necessarily, uh, subscribe to them, but being aware that these, that Fox news is out there and that mm. this is where my dad gets his information. And, um, and that if I can allow myself to believe that, um, you know, maybe NPR or whatever it is that I pay attention to, um, I don't necessarily believe this, but if, uh, if I can believe that NPR is, is just as biased as Fox news is, um, mm. uh, based on, on, you know, our, our polarized convictions, right. um, and, and the agenda behind them, then that's, uh, then that's what stuck with me from, from that trip, yeah. at least in terms of, of my attention to media. Right.
I'm super proud to announce my next venture, Voicing Change Media. This beautiful consortium of thinkers, storytellers, artists, and visionaries all committed to fostering meaningful exchanges and sharing thought-provoking content. Voicing Change Media will feature shows like The Proof with Simon Hill, Soul Boom with Rain Wilson, Mentor Buffet with Alexi Pappas, Feel Better Live More with Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, and The Conversation with Amanda Decadene. You can explore this network and all its offerings at voicingchange.media. So you start in South Carolina and there's this great, great scene where you sell your car for a thousand dollars and then yeah. you have to pay her to give you a ride to the beach. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and she doesn't, she couldn't care less what you were doing. She yeah. seems totally disinterested and yeah. like unflappable about yeah. the whole experience. And, and there, it's very unceremonious how you begin. You kind of dip your toe into the ocean and then you're yeah. like, all right, I guess we're starting now. Yeah. And that's it. Totally. I mean, there's, yeah, I don't know. There's no real way to start a trip yeah. like that. And I don't, uh, I didn't want anyone there. I did have a videographer there, my, right. my friend Jared, um, <clears throat> with The Wandering Fever, who's making this film um, with Solomon, uh, my main sponsor, as, as the backer behind it. Um, and I was grateful to have him. He rented a car. So after we sold that car, he rented a car and, and I had backup for the first six days, which was just right. really nice. It was a nice soft way to enter this journey. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, I mean, it's just crazy starting a trip like that. It's like, you really do that, that, uh, um, that quote definitely emerges the, a trip of a thousand miles begins with a single step. And right. like that first step is just like, so wah, wah. Right. <laughs> it's just like, yeah. And then there's another step and yeah, yeah it's just, I guess we're doing this. Yeah, exactly. And <laughs> yeah. then, and then you get to the end of the first day and like, I only did like 13 miles that day and I got completely fried, sunburned, fried. Uh-huh. And on for day one, blisters, like sunburn, um, hungry, like everything. Right. And it's just like, wow. All right. All right. It's going to be a long yeah. adventure. <laughs> totally. Um, well, it seemed like most of the most profound encounters that you had with human beings took place uh, during that like tour of the South, like from South Carolina through Oklahoma um, is where you connected the most with people. And then it's, then you kind of enter this, you know, phase where the expanses of nature begin to, you know, just get bigger and bigger and those encounters are fewer and fewer. Um, And then like you're in Aspen and you do a reset where you're home with your family and your friends. And it almost felt like all the questions that you were asking of yourself and of others had kind of been answered at that point. Like every, every intention that you went into this run, you know, in terms of like things that you wanted to solve for yourself or discover or learn had kind of been resolved and answered. Yeah. But yet you have this whole, you know, actually the hardest part of the whole thing still remained for you to do. Was there a moment where you were like, I don't need to get to California. Like I've kind of satisfied myself here. There was, yeah, I would say that I can safely say that there was no moment where that actually occurred to me. Uh It was just kind of like, I don't know. It's like going down the Grand Canyon or going through the rapids or something. It's like you're halfway through the rapids and you're like, that was fun. But it's like, there's no, there's no getting out. Mm. There's no getting off the river. 
And that's that was my mentality. Right. And I think it was in in terms of completing the goal, that was the best mentality to have for my personal health and uh, my mental sanity, it probably wasn't the best. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it did bring me to uh, a place that I, I couldn't have anticipated or gotten to otherwise. Yeah. And uh, I still think about it a lot uh, to this day, two years later, just like uh, the state of mind that I ended up getting into in, in the desert, yeah. in the depths of it. And just kind of uh, this this full emptiness of of self, and right. and you start to think about uh, other, you know, some some very big names throughout the course of human history who have tested themselves in the desert and for for long periods of time. And and growing up Catholic, uh, the first one obviously to come to mind is Jesus in the desert for right. for forty days and. I'm not overly religious anymore, but it's something that uh, I think about uh, in in that sense is like, you know, how accurate uh, that story is or how much you want to interpret that story. Like the body and the mind goes through some really serious changes mm-hmm. when you're in the desert for that long and you start to lose it a little bit and um, you just start to become really empty and your almost your ego is truly becomes dissolved and yeah. and you just have this goal to get across it and and you start doing and not thinking and and it, it's it's a really beautiful thing well it's like a purification exactly. right it's like you've traversed a huge section of the country you've been enriched through all these experiences that you've had and all these people that you've met along the way and now in order for you to become whole, we got to strip you down to your, you know, we're going to take you through this section of the country that is going to basically beat you down and burn you to a crisp until you, you're forced to meet yourself in the most profound way that, that, that you ever have before. And then you can reassemble all these pieces and emerge from this experience like transformed. Totally. Really? Like it's, yeah. it's, it is biblical in a certain respect. And it's also this kind of, um, you know, hero's journey. Like yeah. you're not done yet. Now yeah. the final phase. We're gonna put you through this thing. Yeah. And see if you can weather this. Totally. And it's not permanent, which is uh-huh. uh kind of a bummer. <laughs> that purification of the soul, if if that's what we're gonna call it, it's not permanent. Yeah. And like you, I uh, finished the trip and back to <laughs> resetting. <laughs> totally. You, you it's like, all right, what do I before. do with? And and this right. is where I'm I'm curious to talk. Uh, you know, or listen to to other people that have gone through uh, similar sort of things. Like, how how do you put your life together after this? You're not going to keep walking forever. Um, and and it's it's funny. I uh, you know, of course, any you tell anybody that you went across the country on on foot, and and nine times out of ten, they they'll say, "Oh, you like Forrest Gump." Right. And and of course, you're like, "Oh yeah, yeah, Forrest. Okay, that was that was a movie, but yes." But there is this scene in the movie where he just like you can see it's like it's very real. Like he he has purified himself and uh-huh. and he just stops in the desert and he says he, he's done. He's uh-huh. going home. Right. It's like there's nothing else to <laughs> yeah. to be done. I f- figured if I found everything that yeah. I was looking for. Yeah. Right. And it, I, like it gives me goosebumps right now. It's kind of funny to think about Forrest Gump even after I've I've done that and uh, to to 
recognize those similarities uh-huh. and uh, just and the the astuteness of the film itself in putting that in there, right? And just ha- like not labeling it overtly, but having it there and just seeing like he was he was done, like he uh-huh. there was nothing there was nothing more to be gained from from that journey. Right. But you were not in the desert and you did not have that epiphany in no. that moment. No. <laughs> yeah. Well, it is, it is most people's only frame of reference totally. for anything that you're doing. And rather than be annoyed by that, like yeah. to be able to embrace it and say, actually, that was profound. Yes, yeah. I am. I am retracing those steps in that way yeah. on this journey. Yeah. Which is cool. Yeah. Of all the um, encounters that you had along the way, what are the ones that, that stick with you? Um, so there was that one, uh, this is in the film, Jim Steele, um, who literally emptied out every dollar of his wallet and gave it to me. And, um, that was quite profound. That was in, uh, Arkansas on a particularly miserable day. I could remember, like I was in between two towns. One was called Quitman. I, I suppose you would pronounce uh-huh. it Quitman. <laughs> uh-huh. And the other was, I forget what the other town was, but it was like, in a day where if I was really paying attention to the, what the, uh, the universe was, uh, telling me to do, it was telling me to quit, man. Uh-huh, and, right. uh, this guy is, uh, pulls up and, and, uh, just as he said, in the spirit that it's given, just gave me every dollar out of his pocket. Was he driving along the road and he stopped? Was, yeah. He was driving along the road and, and, uh, pulled up alongside of me and saw me with my backpack and my beard and, and asked if I was running across the country. And uh, he said, I want to talk to you. Uh-huh. And he was up ahead another uh, 200 meters. And, and we just had a short conversation. But um, I think it was equally as impactful for both of us. Mm-hmm. Another one was in the middle of the Nevada desert. Um, there's this uh, on Highway 50 in Austin, Nevada, there's this bar there called the Serbian Christmas Bar or something like that, and there's this uh, a Serbian man that that runs the that owns the restaurant, and uh, it was it was just funny to find an article written about him. They were the article was about Highway 50, but then it focused in on this man, and I found this article and and just talking about how racist and terrible of a human being this guy is, and and uh, so went in there and had a several beers with him and, and had a great time and, uh, heard his perspective and, and tried to take it in as best I could. But, uh, you know, still in the end, uh, walked away with a new friend. Mm. Um, gosh, there was so many along the, uh, so I did a, a, a section of rivers. So you were asking like kind of how this, how I came up with, uh, the idea of this run or, and one of the things like, so I, I did about a thousand miles of trail, um, to 2,500 miles of, uh, of road and, uh, 300 miles of river. I did the Tennessee right. river going across Alabama in the spirit of, of American westward expansion. Mm-hmm. It's very Huckleberry Finn. Yeah. Huck Finn. And also, uh, Lewis and Clark, Lewis uh-huh. and Clark did about a thousand miles of river up river. They went up, uh, I believe the Mississippi and then to the Missouri, they went up the the Missouri quite a ways before setting off on land. Um, uh, but just trying to get a feel for that, uh, you know, when you can take advantage of, of water you do. 
And so I was going down the river for a couple days and, um, or at that point, three or four days. And I just about to cross into Alabama and, uh, needed to get some food from, uh, Pittsburgh, Tennessee, South Pittsburgh, Tennessee, and pulled on to this private dock and almost I've got my wet sleeping bag out, my uh-huh. paddleboard up on on this dock, and this fancy car drives up right then, and I'm like, oh gosh, this is the the landowner, and sure enough, it was, and and uh, he had read an article that was published in uh, the M- M- Memphis, Tennessee. I can't remember the name of the, uh, uh, or sorry, Chattanooga, Tennessee. I can't remember the name of the newspaper, but he just comes up to me and he says, "Are you that skinny boy running to to San Francisco?" I said, yes, sir, I am. He's like, I'm taking you to supper. <laughs> and so we get in his car and, and he drove me into town. He's the uh, fourth generation uh, CEO, owner of, ca- of Lodge Cast Iron, mm. the, the, the skillets. Mm. And uh, took me all over town. Town's about a thousand people. Right. Um, introduced me to the entire staff in the office. They all thought I was a bit kooky. Um, but he, this guy is like mid seventies and, and just like you could tell was a total character uh-huh. and just wanted to talk about rivers and, and how he, he's, uh, coming to the end of his, his time at the, uh, at the company and, and he's going to go start doing big river trips. And, wow. and so that was really awesome. And so he give you a bed to sleep in that night? No, I had to keep going. <laughs> yeah, I would have, he would have, and I would have right. taken him up on it, but I, I, uh, I it was midday, right? And so I needed to keep going. And he pulled out a hundred dollars out of his pocket and said, "Can I give this to you?" And I said, "I, you know, I really don't need it. I saved up my money." And mm. and uh, seventy five years old, the guy gives me knuckles, and he's like, "Right on!" Wow. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like mm. you're this Western manifest destiny version of the Buddhist ascetic, you know, who, mm-hmm. who basically is relying on the kindness of strangers to survive. Yeah. yeah. Did you, did, were, did, were there opportunities to, where people were opening up your, their homes and letting you crash there for the night and stuff like that? Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one in particular memorable one was in, uh, on the Osage reservation in Oklahoma, um, Northeastern Oklahoma. And I had gotten to this town uh, space in the name of the town right now. Um, but got there, was buying a, a couple beers at the, uh, the store and this guy, uh, behind me in line, uh, he, he, I, that's what it was. I was asking the, uh, the clerk cause I had spent the previous night out in the rain and I just, I wanted a, a nice dry spot to sleep. I wasn't looking for uh-huh. anything other than a dry spot. And, uh, and, She's like, yeah, I don't know. The bridge over there is it's okay, but I think it's pretty rocky there. And and this guy behind uh, behind me in line, he just looks at me and he says, uh, you're, "You're not gonna, so long as you don't steal anything and you don't go into my brother's room who owns the place, uh, you can stay with me, <laughs> brother man." And he had a twelve pack of beer, and and uh-huh. uh, we went back to his place and. Talked for the next four and a half hours, wow. and uh, I can't imagine the set of circumstances that would have to arise for me to invite like a stranger who's in line with me at some store back to my house, yeah, to, to crash. You yeah. know what I mean? Like we've 
lost that. Maybe that's a small town thing and it yeah. seems like a small gesture, but that's kind of a big thing. It is a big thing. Yeah. And it was, uh, in, in, I, I, it seems to me that I encountered that way more like that sort of generosity. I encountered uh-huh. that way more in the South and then less so as I got into the right. West. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, so yeah, I don't I don't know what that uh, says about us or about the yeah. South or I mean, maybe what it's do you, still what do you there. make of America? Yeah. <laughs> what is your summation? So I mean, after that trip, I th- I thought America was great, and yeah. I still do to to this day, and it, it definitely, uh, um, yeah, it it, it rekindled uh, this love that I that I have for this country, and and uh, I just think that. I mean, I'm not going to go out preaching to everybody to go run or walk across the country, but. Um, Running across our our county or or whatever it is, uh, you know, can can do a lot. Well, we not everyone's going to run across America. Very few are, but mm-hmm. everybody has the ability to more profoundly connect with their neighbors. Totally, you know? and I think that's that's what I take away from it. That there are all little things that we can do every single day to try to bridge this divide a little yeah. bit better than we have. And I think such a huge part of it is like physically getting out there and meeting people. And mm-hmm. it's really uncomfortable. Like initially it's really uncomfortable. Well, you have the ultimate icebreaker. You know? yeah. It's like when you open up with like, this is what I'm doing, like everyone's gonna wanna talk to you. Totally. But you strike me, it's not like you're this this super outgoing person. Like you're, mm-hmm. you're kind of a quiet guy, right? Mm-hmm. Like, was that uncomfortable for you to be that open and vulnerable and, and like roll up on strangers when you're passing through? It wasn't, uh, you know, going back to this this myth of the mountain lion. When when I mean, you really start to embody that, like you really start to feel like you are something special, mm-hmm. um, even though it's it's uh, it's not lasting for that long. It's just lasting for uh, the few months that you're doing it, and then you know when it's done. It's something that you have done. It's no longer something that you are doing. Yeah. So while you are doing that thing, I found that it was really quite easy for me to, you know, to go into a bar and and kind of puff up my chest right. and say, I'm I'm running across the country. Who's buying me a beer? <laughs> <laughs> Lots of free beers, I would imagine. Totally. Yeah. 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 Um, so yeah, and then and then when it's over, you that's that's where the real work I think begins, uh, at least for. Uh, the 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 individual right. is like, what do you do with this thing that you have done that you are no longer doing? Right. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I don't know if you think of yourself or call yourself an artist. I certainly do. Um, and and you know, part of being an artist, the definition of art and being an artist is to um, perceive the world through your unique lens and then translate it. Um, using some form of medium to elucidate a greater truth about humanity or the world, mm-hmm. right? And that can come in a variety of forms. It, be, it can it can be in the analog, like encounters that you're having when you're running across America, but you do it in many ways. Like you're very much a storyteller through photography, through film, through your, I mean, the writing on your website. I'd never been to your website before. Mm-hmm. Your website is super cool. Like it, the way it's I mean, it's laid out so minimally and beautifully, but everything that you've written on it and the visual aesthetic of it, like it speaks to that artistic sensibility and the storytelling aspect of, of what you've done is super important. And I, I, I'm sure there's no, it's no mistake that that this film 
you know, still hasn't come out two years since you've done the run, like the mm -hmm. amount of work to try to get it right and tell the story that you want to tell. Totally. And uh, I'm, I'm looking over at this book here that you have, mm -hmm. Open Water, uh, published by Chronicle Books. I'm going to shamelessly oh, promote yeah. that I've got a book coming out about this as well. Oh, you do? Cool. By Chronicle. Oh, good. Um, when is that springtime, happening? Uh, spring, April 2020. Oh, good. Then I can corral you to come back here. It's wonderful. And talk about it <laughs> yeah, some more. Perfect. Um, but yeah, it, it's, uh, you know, that, and, and I had both the film and the movie in mind, um, before I started this trip and that's, it was, it was part of my packing. It was like, I want to be able to like, I don't want to just do this for me. I'm doing this for, uh, a lot of people that don't have the ability, whether it's physically, uh, whether it's money, mm -hmm. whether it's family, time, any number of things, like how do I, how can I share this with as many people as possible in, in as positive a, of a way as possible? Um, and so, yeah, I don't know if I've totally embraced uh, the title of artist yet. I think that I, um, I mean, I studied sociology and photography in school and, uh -huh. and with photography, certainly you talk a lot about art. Um, it's It's such a technical uh, pursuit that you're oftentimes talking about technique rather than, uh, the meaning behind, uh, all of, all of what you're shooting. Um, but that element has always been there for me. And, yeah. and, um, and your I wife's just, an artist. She is. Yeah. Very and much. Now you so. live in like an artist collective. Totally. In Santa Fe, so yeah. just embrace yeah. this moniker, <laughs> Ricky. All right. <laughs> I'll, sh I'll shift my, uh, my resume around. Uh, um, well, when I'm watching the movie, I'm thinking about the logistics of how you pulled this off. Not just, not the, not in addition to the run, like how you managed, um, the workflow of like, capturing all of this. I would imagine yeah. a lot of it's on iPhone, but you had cameras with you. And I'm thinking, how many SD cards did he bring? And how is yeah. he keeping the batteries charged? And you know, what is he doing with all the footage to make sure that it doesn't get wet and ruined and yeah. all that kind of stuff? Well, I went through, I destroyed, uh, I think at least two, and I think probably three Sony RX100s. Uh -huh. I'm surprised they still give me the, uh, the insurance deal on them because I buy those at a thousand bucks a pop and a hundred, yeah. And a hundred bucks on the insurance yeah. and they never last me for more than six months, but they're, uh -huh. they're great cameras. Um, chest mounted GoPro and then, uh, the iPhone and, um, yeah, it was just kind of funny, uh, at times there, like, you know, when I've got literally several weeks of footage, uh, on my person, like right. the, it no longer is anything worth anything except for those, those right. cards there. And you might, are they in Ziploc bags and super, like, how are you protecting no. all that stuff? Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. Well, you had, I mean, there's a lot of beautiful cinematography and incredible drone shots and the like. So mm -hmm. you had a crew that would like drop in for short periods, right? Totally. So I had disappear. Jared. Uh, so with the wandering fever, Dean Leslie and, and his wife, Hannah, um, are, they're an incredible artistic couple that, uh, have done most of Solomon's running films over mm -hmm. the past eight or nine years. I've worked with Dean on a whole bunch of projects. We've been on five different continents together. And so this was definitely a, a new route for us, for me to shoot a lot and just hand that over. Uh -huh. And then, uh, and then he sent out, uh, his assistant, uh, Jared to, to join me for, for, uh, at the beginning for one week. And then in the middle in Colorado for three weeks and into the desert. 
and then at the end for four days. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was, uh, yeah, you're just kind of keeping your fingers crossed that you're getting everything. Um, for me personally, it was a challenge to, you know, on the worst of days to pull out the camera and, and point right. it at myself and, and talk to talk uh-huh. to myself or talk to an audience. Um, when I'm feeling borderline crippled uh, to set the camera up and run back and forth in front of the camera. Yeah, a there's couple a couple times. times where I was like, he put the camera there and then totally. went back and ran by it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, some, some outtakes uh-huh. would be hilarious. The, the camera uh-huh. falling to the ground and- Right. Yeah. Um, but I was, yeah, having now seen the evolution of the film, I, I, I'm grateful for uh, all that we did uh, put into it. Were there times, it has to be awkward at times when you're having these encounters with people to pull out a camera and, and say, can I document this? Yeah, it was awkward at times. People, I only got turned down twice. Uh-huh. Yeah, and people were, were pretty chill about it. I think they appreciated, again, what I was doing. And, and uh, you know, they'd ask what it's for. And I say, well, I'm, I might make a movie about this, but really I just want to remember the people mm-hmm. that I'm meeting along the way. Mm-hmm. And what's the plan with the movie? I mean, as of today, it's not it's not out publicly yet. Yeah. Well, uh, keeping our fingers crossed, it's been submitted to a couple of the the bigger independent film fests here in the states. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that would that's kind of the ultimate goal right. is is to see it on the big screen in cool. in Austin or in uh, in New York City. Uh, um, so. Nice. Yeah, if any of you guys are out there. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it's an hour and 15 minutes or something yep. like that. So a little bit shorter than a typical um, nonfiction documentary, right. but but much longer than anything you'd done prior. Totally, yeah. yeah. Well, let's talk about um, run every, the run every street thing. Yeah. Because the, the, the trans-Americana was taking this very thin line across America um, in many ways, uh, you know, just circumstances dictating that you have to keep it somewhat on a surface level. And the running every street in San Francisco thing, which really put you on the map and created like a media frenzy, was a different version of that that allowed you to go deep, right? Yeah. To like more immerse yourself in your community on that same theme of, you know, you can't know the world unless you know, you know, your neighborhood. And mm-hmm. you're like, I live here. Like, let me learn this. Totally. And people think of San Francisco as a relatively small city. Yeah. <laughs> that is not the case if you're going to run every street. Totally. So how did that idea come to you? So that that actually came to me almost immediately after running across the country. So Liz and I uh, got back together. We got back together as I was running across mm-hmm. the country. Um, we started discussing, you know, where's next. Uh, she was, we were in Wisconsin where she was doing her MFA program and and she had a, a couple great job prospects in San Francisco, and, and I can again kind of live anywhere. So I uh-huh. um, I signed up for that, and we moved uh, back to the Bay Area, and uh, and it was really kind of in my recovery time from running across the country, where uh, I was sitting up in the the Berkeley Hills um, at this really cool house that we had uh, scored for for the summer, 
and out on the porch there where you're looking at everything from Mount Tam to Sausalito, Golden Gate Bridge, uh, the Bay Bridge, downtown San Francisco. You're looking down the peninsula. You're looking at Oakland and Fremont. You know, you've, you've got a view of a population of 2 million people and so much mm-hmm. commerce, so much transportation coming and going. Really, it was I'm not going to call it the opposite of my experience uh, that I had just done going across the country, but in terms of the space and the solitude that I had experienced doing 40, 50 miles a day running across the country, it was so dense and still so completely foreign to me. Uh-huh. Um you know, to have had such a massive experience, uh, such as running across the country, and then look it down at this human hive of two million people, and kind of realizing that, like, my experience was so limited with what I had just done, and that if you really want to get to know uh, a country, a place. Um, like this is such a critical part of it as well as, is getting to know the densest part, the, the place where, where humans actually congregate in mass. And so that's when I'm looking at that and, and I'm like, well, all right. So how many, how many miles of street are there in San Francisco? Uh Like if, if you're, you know, it's, it's a reasonably, uh, it's a compact city. It's got, uh, very strict borders, um, it's a seven by seven mile square. Um, and you know, I start, so I started doing my research, how many miles are uh-huh. there? And I think it said 1150 miles of street or 1100 miles of street in San Francisco. And so I'm like, okay, that's from approximately Denver to San Francisco. Uh-huh. Like I know how far that is. I know how long that could potentially take me. Um, like what would that be like? And then more research, I find that, uh, uh, San Francisco Chronicle uh, writer, uh, jur- uh, journalist, uh, had done He'd exactly that. Yeah. yeah, he walked it over about seven years' time and wrote like two or three different articles mm-hmm. about it. And uh, and I was immediately inspired. And I'm Did like, you get in touch with that guy? I tried my very best sleuthing ever. I, I called, his name is John Graham, and I called probably ten different John Grams, uh-huh. and not one. Just of cold them. call, cold call. Yeah, <laughs> like it was like I, book totally. It was. It was <laughs> like, and I even contacted the Chronicle. I contacted a lot of people and tried to. And he'd moved to a different part of California, and and so I looked for him there. And like his age, I never never wow. talked to him. I'd still love to talk to him. I uh-huh. I, I don't know if he knows. Um, that I'm sure he knows now. I would hope so. It's like because yeah. it is very inspiring, and and his writings on it were ended up becoming very similar to to my impressions, right? Um, and so so yeah, I I, I wanted to uh, take the same approach, but do it um, ultra runner style and just massive miles every uh-huh. day, and and uh, and see. You know, because if if he's if he took seven years to do it, a city can completely change in seven years, yeah. especially a city like San Francisco. And you got to start over and do it again. Totally. <laughs> and, but what's what's if you can do it in in six weeks or two months? Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like you're getting a, a snapshot of that place at that moment in time. Right. 
Um, just looking at the grid of San Francisco, when you were embarking on this, I thought like, well, first of all, like how do you even figure out how you're going to do this route and do it in a sane, like well-planned manner? Yeah. And I realized like that's a super complicated equation to solve. But yeah. when I started digging into it more, getting ready to talk to you today, I realized, oh, it's even way more complicated than I would have imagined. And you sought out the advice or the counsel of like a friend of yours who was a professor, right? Who yeah. like works in computer mapping or something like that to yeah. help you figure out like the best way to approach this. Yeah. And so we we have 70 emails back and forth from each other from my run of San Francisco. Uh -huh. I, it was I was it was every single day I was uh, communicating with him. Uh, his name's Michael Odie. We were on the cross country team together in in high school. Uh, he's he's a brilliant human being, and he loved the idea that I was that I was going uh -huh. for this like a literal human guinea pig for this equation that he's been thinking about before I even mentioned it to him. Um, and in the end, I used very little of his information. Oh, really? Yeah, because and for and it wasn't because his information was bad. It was because of so many different variables, like you, like translating the equation into usable terms for myself. Mm -hmm. um, and so, like, how do you do that? You put it in Google Maps, or you put it in like there's this app called uh, Map My Run, or let uh, I forget what they're called, um, but they actually can talk to you uh, from your phone. Like, take a left here oh, right. at the end of this block, mm -hmm. turn around, and. Uh, it's San Francisco's too dense for that to actually work, for it to be, uh, for it to to work seamlessly. Mm -hmm. And so, or you know, if you got off the route, so it would program a ten mile uh, loop, is what they call it, because you are starting and finishing in the same place, mm -hmm. even though it doesn't look at all like a loop. Mm -hmm. um, if you got off your loop at all, you're on mile two, and then like only one block away, you might be on mile five. Uh, the equation would skip those three miles and just, uh, and so, but then it would ruin my entire plan for the right. day. And so I ended up just, I found that it was for me personally, it was easier to, to have a map in my hand and kind of figure out my route throughout uh -huh. the day. And it was like, it, it actually became kind of fun. Like I'm not a, uh, a puzzle person, like crossword puzzles or the Rubik's cube. I've never solved, solved a Rubik's cube in my life. Um, but when you, when it when it gets translated into running terms, and you're actually running this crossword puzzle or this Rubik's cube, and if you do it well, then it'll take you 25 miles. If you do it poorly, it's going to take you 28 miles. Uh -huh. Like at the end of a 25 mile day, those three extra miles <laughs> that's a, that's a big are, is huge incentive <laughs> yeah. for you to get this problem right. Uh -huh. And so it was, uh, it became really exciting, and I got really good at it. Yeah, you have to be this cartographer, urban archaeologist yep. to solve it. And it's interesting that so so this professor was like crunching algorithms to solve it, but ultimately you you went more a little bit more on like feel and tactile printed out maps and things like that. Totally. And and like there's just a lot of things that like that he couldn't possibly account for. Um, and, and like, some of like those, you can't park your car, your van there for all day or something totally, like that. That's yeah. one thing you yeah. can't park your car there or, you know, it would make sense, um, for, for the sake of the algorithm 
to go across this street and do like two or three blocks in a different neighborhood and which uh, you would therefore not have to do on a different day, Mm -hmm. but it would ruin the entire feel of, of, of that day. Like Mm -hmm. you're very much like a huge street, like market uh, going down the center of San Francisco. Like staying within an, like a sub ecosystem. Exactly. Not crossing into a different kind of like cross section of humanity. That's a very good way to put it. Yeah. yeah, Totally. And, and so I didn't, I didn't really want to do that. And so he would figure out, you know, so this is those 70 emails back and forth is, Uh is him not just figuring out a good algorithm, but figuring out, what Ricky wants. Uh-huh. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. And so you, were you sleeping in your van at night or were you going home up to the Berkeley Hills? Uh, so I ended up sleeping in, so I've, uh, long story short, uh, a couple of European friends came over to the States uh, wanting a van. I helped them buy a van. Uh-huh. I had no intention of using this van. I was just going to sell it when they left. And when they left is when this project started. And that's when I realized like, this is going to save me. Yeah. This is going to save me two hours a day Uh of driving when I'm going to be extremely tired. Um, And I like didn't want to deal with traffic. And so I ended up sleeping in my van for most of it. And uh, Liz would come into the city and (laughs) camp out in the city, you know, in the, Uh you know, urban camping. I, 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 should have, and I probably still can come up with an amazing map of the best camp spots in San Francisco in proper, <laughs> like places where you can be up on a hill and with your door open, looking at stars and, and the city skyline and uh-huh. completely safe. And, um, so yeah, it was, it was a really cool part of it. And then of course, just being able to, um, to, to end my day, you know, right there and then start right. the next day right there. And you never had to worry about hydration or food, right? Did you just go into restaurants and eat, or how did you manage like the the calories? Almost entirely restaurants. Uh-huh. Yeah, in in Chinatown, it was uh, yep Chinese food, and in the Sunset, it was Vietnamese and and pho, and in the Mission, it was tacos, lots of tacos, right. and yeah, and. I never, I, I, again, carried uh, two different cameras with me in order to be able to document all of it. So I had the Sony RX100 and then a, a little GoPro um, uh, and then my cell phone. So I guess I had three cameras. Yeah, uh, and we should me. say Solomon made a film out of that called Every Single Street. Was yeah. it the same people that worked on the Transamericana? Totally, yeah, The Wandering Fever, uh-huh. yeah. Um, and it was it was a really fun film to work on, uh, just kind of... It was different than going across the country because, um, you know, we were talking about how I, when I was running across the country, like I didn't even have to tell people or if I did want to tell people, right. then, you know, it was like people were immediately interested in what I was doing. This was completely the opposite. You know, <laughs> like I, I don't, cares? yeah, exactly. <laughs> who cares? Exactly. Uh-huh. Um, you know, but, yeah. but your ability to interact with people is a hundredfold higher. Yeah, like you're just surrounded by people the entire time. Totally. So, what were those encounters like? Like, how did how what was similar and what was different about the interpersonal, you know, encounters, experiences that you had? Yeah, they were a lot shorter. They weren't. I'll, I'll admit, they for the most part, they weren't as deep. Um, it's just the nature of living in a mm-hmm. city, and that's part of what I wanted to to discover on on something like that. Is you know the the city you're just packed like it's constant 
stimulation, and that's people, that's cars, that's noise, it's food, like all of these things. Stuff you would have killed for when you were running mm-hmm. across the desert. Totally, yeah. yeah, with the exception of like, you know, the 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 lack of intimacy. And I think that uh, that speaks a lot to what a city is. Um, a lot of people, for me personally, like if I wanna go get lost, like I go out into the mountains and that's my, that's my quiet spot. That's where I go to be by myself. For a lot of people, that space is the city. Mm-hmm. Like that's, uh, they appreciate the anonymity of being in the city and, and how nobody, nobody really looks at you. Nobody really cares. You know, I think that's really a safe place for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, the but flip, also lonely and alienating. Totally. Yeah. That's the flip side of that coin. And so it's, uh, um, so yeah, it was, uh, I would say my most powerful interactions uh, with people in San Francisco were uh, were homeless people, and uh, and I think a huge part of that was this dedication on on my part. Um, I'm can be just as guilty of this as the next person, and that's to ignore uh, this problem. Um, but when you're running certain streets in San Francisco, um, dead end street in the middle of Soma. Like there is absolutely no reason to go to the end of that dead end street unless Mm -hmm. you're going there to, uh, to shoot up and then pass out. Mm -hmm. And so when I find myself there and there's people there, uh, what are you going to do? Say, Hey, how you doing? Mm -hmm. And they, they look at you looking at them and, and you, and you can have a conversation. Maybe you don't. Uh, I, I never felt, uh, in, in danger by any means. I, I certainly have it on my side that I'm, you know, a young white male. Um, you well, know. a guy in running shoes isn't very threatening. Totally. It's not like an alarm yeah. bell sounding right. off um, yeah. if you're running around, but you know, you're, you're putting yourself in precarious situations. Yeah. Um, but never any, you never had any brushes with danger. No. It was, uh, yeah, maybe like on, on my final day running through the Tenderloin in, in San Francisco, like eight or nine o'clock at night, um, this guy, I came around a corner and, and he like threw a fake punch at me, uh-huh. like at my face and just stopped right short. And he, he was just sizing me up. Uh-huh. That was like his, and, and when, when he saw that I didn't, I didn't even flinch. And the reason that I didn't flinch is because I had just run 48 or 49 miles that day and I was completely exhausted. <laughs> yeah. And like, I don't think it really would have mattered to me if he'd have knocked mm-hmm. me out. <laughs> um, that, w- that probably would have been a nice end to that day. Um, he, just, he just said, all right, man. <laughs> well, in part inspired by that expedition. I, I spend, I've told the story before, but I spend half the week in downtown LA because I've got a daughter that goes to a high school down there and it's just too far to commute on the daily. Um, and I'm used to running in the trails around here. Yeah. And I kind of took it upon myself. Like I've lived in Los Angeles for over 20 years, mm-hmm. but until last year, I would rarely go downtown. There's just no reason to. And there's you know, as you know, Los Angeles is sprawling, it's gigantic, and there's very little, uh, there's huge patches of it that I've never been to and know mm-hmm. nothing about. And so um, I've taken it upon myself to better connect with my environment. And 
when I do my runs downtown, it's, it's all city streets and I try to take different routes and I'll go through, like we're right on the, the edge of Skid Row. So I always run through Skid Row and I'll run around MacArthur Park, which are places that, you know, everyone will tell you don't, don't go there. Mm-hmm. And I found the people, you know, to be like really friendly. Mm-hmm. And these are people with, not, they're living in tents on the street, you yeah. know, and I get high fives and they recognize me now. And like, yeah. there's like a friendly kind of like rapport there. Whereas when I go on the trails around here, like I'll wave to somebody running on the trail and they don't even wave back, right. you know? And I'm like, that's not right. Right, right, right. You know, there's so much to be learned if we can set aside our fears and our judgments and and open ourselves up a little bit. Not to say that I've done anything like what you've done. I've just had a small taste of that. Yeah. What that experience must be like. And I don't know. I mean, I don't know what the benefit is, um, but I know that there is a benefit to stepping outside of our comfort zones and looking people in the eye. And, and I think it's, it, it works both directions. I think that it, uh, makes those people feel more human. You know, when you're sleeping on the street in the middle of, uh, down, downtown LA, Mm -hmm. you, you can feel less and less like a human and it makes you and me feel more human as well. And, and, uh, tap into this empathy, um, that, that I think can go a really long way in our, yeah. in this time in our society and um, something that perhaps we're losing a little bit and, and it's a good way to, to kind of gain it back a little. We need more empathy. More empathy. We definitely need yeah, more em- empathy and humility, yep. I think, yep. are, are, are keystones for a better future. Absolutely. Um, one of your main goals or the impetus behind the, the Trans Americana run was to inspire people to help them realize like, hey, this is this is doable, $1,000 a month, that whole thing. But um, did you, but kind of ironically, the, the run every street thing has been the template that has been copied and emulated by, you've created like a social movement now. There are people <laughs> all over the world who are doing their version of what you've done. And there's news articles about it. Like that guy, there was a guy in Scotland, I think, mm-hmm. who was a kickboxer who then did, he tried to do what you did in his own town. Mm-hmm. So that has to be really cool to see kind of like the the ripple effect of that. It's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It's so like, I, I, I don't follow much on social media, but I do follow the every single street hashtag. Uh-huh. And it's just so cool to be able to see, uh, like on like outwardly, they're not the most amazing photographs uh, or or accomplishes accomplishments on a day to day basis, but you keep kind of going through these, and you're you're realizing like no, you're just seeing a normal person's v- version of where they live, mm-hmm. and it's and and. Yeah, it's just really cool. I mean, you're fertilizing these seeds that are that are planting the fruit of greater connectivity and community. Because the the more people that are doing that, the more connected they are. Like they're having their version of your experience, which is uniting people and bringing them together. Totally. There was yeah. a pit, there was an article about a group in in Vancouver that did every trail in Stanley Park. Right. Yeah. I didn't realize that there was like. 24,000 kilometers of trail and that's incredible (laughs) and they're going to do every trail and there's a big group photo of all of them together like that's got to be amazing to see that yeah it's awesome there's there's one in there's a guy doing it in brazil and for and uh just seeing the maps of the i think this is like it's you know some of these ideas they have to 
you know, we have to wait for that idea, for everything to come together for that idea to work. Mm-hmm. And right now our technology is, is what is a big part of what's allowing uh, this project to take off. And I think the, the hunger and the thirst that people have to be more connected. Yep, absolutely. Right? Yep. Um, on top of that, there are all these people doing art projects on the the graphing, like the mapping part of it too. Yeah. Like you've been sharing those on Twitter, like people, totally. like these little, like, I don't know what you call them, like motion graphics of yeah. like seeing the street, you know, the, like this, the, like this map street art kind of thing. Yeah. And it's, it's sort of organic, but like organic on a human level, which is definitely organic, but, uh, on a human level. Uh-huh. <laughs> so uh, the one that I'm talking about or thinking it, there's a couple in particular. But one like won an award or something? Yeah, yeah, totally. So this is a, a gentleman in France um, who uh, I gave him all of the data from from my project and he digitalized the entire thing. Uh-huh. Um, so that was just for, for my data and the stuff that's out there. There's a guy in Zurich doing every single street in Zurich and, and he's got some really cool uh, graphics going along with that. But mm. um, just the ability to wear a watch or wear your phone and then to have the, uh, this strange looking map of what you've accomplished during, that, during the day mm-hmm. um, to be able to uh, show like, you know, here's your photos of, of uh, the stuff that you saw, and then here's this strange-looking map. Yeah. Um, and, it, and it looks way different. It, it looks way, a 10-mile run in the city where you've got this goal to cover all of the streets in the, a small area can look so much more impressive uh, just on a graphic level yeah. than a 100-mile point-to-point run. Because yeah. one's just a line and the other is this very intricate, uh, detailed um, both accomplishment of a run, but also accomplishment of human society and that yeah. they created those streets and, and why are the streets in that shape? Uh-huh. I feel like you should also do like a Toshin style coffee table book with yeah. the photographs and kind of the, the graphics of the mapping and yeah. all of that, that tells the story in a more visual way. Yeah. Working on it. Oh, you are every yeah, every single every single street See, you're com. An artist. Oh, is that what it is? <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's cool. I nabbed man. that up right away. <laughs> uh-huh. um, I like that, man. Yeah. How do you uh, how do you like make your life work? Like you live a very you. Are, I mean, to me, you're the definition of a minimalist. Like you keep your overhead really low. You keep your life. Um, uh, you conduct your life in a way that allows you to do the things that, that, that you love and you have sponsors that support you and all of that. But like, what does it look like on a daily basis? Um, sometimes it's really exciting. Sometimes it's so mundane that it's depressing. Uh-huh. Um, like having running, like I'm, I'm very fortunate, uh, to have running as part of my daily routine. Um, and I would say less so than it was 10 years ago. I, I, I used to be obsessively like need to run every day. Mm-hmm. And now that's a little bit less. And, and I'm realizing that uh, the less I run, if, if I don't have that routine, then uh, that the, the sooner that existential <laughs> uh-huh. crisis comes in. And, and that's usually a pretty good uh, indication that I need to put my shoes on and get out for a run. Um, but yeah, the day to day is—I uh, don't know. It's—I'm uh, trying to figure. It's—it's it's constant reinvention. So some days it's like I feel like I accomplished so much, 
um, whether that's on an artistic level, photographs, um, writing, um, coming up with ideas, figuring out ways to execute those ideas. And then other days it's like virtually nothing at all. But what's important is having the time and the ability to, uh, to be able to do those things. Right. Um, so yeah, I don't know. Does that answer your question? I, I, yeah, I guess. I mean, I, I'm just, you know, I'm interested in, in, in like how, like there's a lot of, I think of you in a way that's sort of similar to someone like Laird Hamilton. Like he's created a life out of surfing that has nothing mm-hmm. to do with competition. Mm-hmm. And you emerged from the competitive sphere of ultra running to cut this very unique path that you own and only you can do what you do. Mm-hmm. And you've been able to create a living out of that, which is like yeah. an amazing thing. Like you get to basically do what you wanna do yeah. and pursue the projects that inspire you. And that's a, that's a gift. That's like, a, that's like this rare liminal space that most people you know, can't access in their lives. Right. Um, and so, I mean, you're, I mean, you're the product of a hippie parent, you know, like mm-hmm. you, were, you were sort of raised to kind of cut your own unique path, I suppose, in many ways. Um, but were there ever times where you thought like, I got to get a job or like, you know, those moments of doubt or yeah. where your faith was questioned about whether this is really <laughs> like, am I going to be able to do this? Totally. Like, it's got to be hard. Yeah. You know? And I, I think that almost every single day, yeah. should I get a job? Right. And it's, and it doesn't- Have you ever had a job, like a job? I've had job? a lot of jobs. I mean, I've, I worked, uh, I waited tables for uh-huh. 10 or 15 years. I yeah. helped distribute mezcal for a, uh-huh. a friend of mine for a little while. Um, I For a little bit there, I was delivering food in San Francisco on my motorcycle. Um, so I've, I've had lots of jobs and, and more often than not, these jobs are to- fill my day mm-hmm. <laughs> a little bit and to meet people and, and to, uh, to, to pretty much to not be at home all day long. Right. And, uh, with, with running as my only outlet. Um, but in terms of running as a job, um, and these more recent projects, um, it's, it's something, you know, when I decided to run across the country a couple of years ago, um, it was, uh, yeah, it was just kind of a time in my career where, you know, I, I'm I'm not going to beat Killian Jornet right. uh, at anything. Like how many times are you going to toe the line at some big race? Exactly. Yeah. And, and like so many of these races, uh, I can tell you from experience, like it's win or lose. It's like even yeah. if there's a podium, even if there's prize money 10 deep, it's people only recognize that you've won or right. you've lost, mm-hmm. which is a shame, I think. Um, but it's also just kind of the nature of the beast. And so in that sense, uh, I decided like, I wanna start doing more project-based runs that possibly uh, inspire people in a completely different mm-hmm. way, in ways that I've personally been inspired. Right. Um, and so for that, it's been these, these two projects that we've been talking about. Um, I also put together a bunch of running trips. Right, hun, I, run, hun, hut, run, hut. Hut, or run, run hut, hut, run. And now I'm getting now <laughs> I'm getting confused. No, uh, it's hut, run, hut. Hut, run, hut. Uh-huh. And bus, run, bus. Uh-huh. Um, so these are two. Like, kind of like running retreats, right? They're kind of running retreats, uh, running experiences. I'm still trying to find the right label for them. Um, but they, 
they're, they're small groups. Uh, this hut to hut running trip in Colorado um, goes from Aspen to uh, a small town outside of Vail. And we stay at these uh, secluded uh, mountain huts, the 10th mountain huts, mm-hmm. which I grew up uh, in Colorado maintaining when I was starting at 16 years old. I was going in doing trail maintenance for these huts. And, and you know, we'd skied from hut to hut and we'd biked from hut to hut, but uh, there was never any trip that was a running from, from yeah. hut to hut. And uh, so six or seven years ago, I came up with this idea to, to do this and and vehicle assisted. So all you need is, is your backpack, uh, a small running pack and, and, uh, and the ability to cover 15 to 20 miles a day, which I think right. is in most people's, uh, wheelhouse and, and way more than people think. And so, um, I've done, I think 13 or 14 of those trips oh, wow. now. I uh-huh. do usually do two or three a year and getting to meet people and see people sort of transform uh, during this week when your cell phone doesn't work and right. you're really challenging yourself and you're sleeping in at 10,000, 11,000 feet with not a lot of oxygen. Yeah. Um, it's really quite exciting. And so it's, it's kind of, for me, it's a, an opportunity to provide a little bit of my life and my philosophy for others. And, you know, I, I don't make people get rid of their watches uh-huh. for the week, but I, I definitely suggest that they turn them off and not pay attention too much. Just, uh, we're going to get there. So if you had to articulate that philosophy, what is it? Uh, fun over fast. Mm-hmm. That's, that's generally what I tell people. And, and, uh, that, uh, yeah, I, I, th- I think that, uh, what it is 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 really just tapping into something way more pri- primordial that we've lost touch with a little bit. Um, this simple, you know, coming up with a simple goal, and that's just to keep moving all day long. Mm-hmm. And then when we get there, we're gonna eat and hang out and share some smiles. And um, it's know. it is getting back to something really primal, and I think that speaks to another like hunger and thirst that we that we have you know people are more interested in having those kinds of experiences now than going to a fancy resort totally and laying on a beach yeah like how can i how can i just feel more and 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 feel more alive right totally and we're so accustomed to you know being in offices and riding elevators and things like that that we've we've lost that connection yeah and what's the bu- the bus run bus thing is it it's kind of a different version of that uh it's a different version of that so i've got some history of, well, I've got a lot of history of road trips and a little history of, of river rafting. And, uh, so I kind of consider it, uh, the, the combination of those two things. Uh Um, I, um, being a traveler for the past 20 plus years have known about, uh, this bus company, Green Tortoise, uh, out of San Francisco. They've been going since I think the early 1970s, 1973, uh, the, the gentleman that started it converted a school bus and drove people from San Francisco to New York. And, uh, he did the first one in like four or five days. Uh And then the second one he did in one week. And then the third one he did in three weeks. And he realized that the longer he went, the more people he could get to sign up for. Uh And so now whatever it is, 50 years later, uh, he's, uh, his son and his grandson uh his son owns it his grandson 
uh, is a driver and uh, they have a fleet of five buses and they run trips all over the place, all over the American West, up to Alaska, um, sometimes down into Mexico. And I'd known about them and I approached them and asked if they could charter a bus uh, and do this trip. Uh, San Francisco, Yosemite, Zion, Grand Canyon, Las Vegas, Big Sur, and back to San Francisco in seven days. Uh-huh. And the guy's eyes just lit up and he's like, that sounds amazing. <laughs> so basically you get a bunch of people, you sleep on the bus. You sleep on the bus. And you the drive buses. to a cool place and you run around and then you sleep and then go somewhere else. Exactly. Yeah. So the bus drives through the night. Um, so it's kind of, I consider that kind of like time travel. Uh-huh. Uh, and you and wake up in a new place. Every you wake day. up in Yosemite and you go, you've got 10 hours to, to do a short run or 10 hours to do a long run, whatever it is that you feel uh, comfortable with. Um, that's pretty cool. So the first one was this past summer. Um, and we did that route that I just mentioned and I had 25, I think runners on the bus, two bus drivers. Uh, we covered, uh, one mile shy of 2000 miles. Uh Um, I think the, uh, the stronger runners covered close to 140 miles throughout the course of the week, including like a 15 mile run in Las Vegas. Um, hitting as many restaurants as they could yeah. for the five hours that we were there. And uh, yeah, it was just, it was really phenomenal. It was uh, living in the American West. We have so much at our fingertips. Um, the issue is getting to all of them. And right. so solved that with uh, two bus drivers and and a bus load full of food and and uh, a bunch of uh, like-minded people. That's pretty cool. So next summer I'm doing, uh, I'll do two of those. I'm going to do one up in Alaska, uh-huh. um, which wow. is really exciting. So we'll fly into Anchorage and fly out of Juneau yeah. and it'll be about 15 or 1600 miles on the bus. And, uh, yeah, potential again of, of a hundred to 150 miles running in all of those places, um, through Amazing. some of the most beautiful terrain, uh, in all of North America. Have you been up to Alaska before? I've I've gone up there five five or six years in a row now. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. So I rode my motorcycle up there um, six years ago um, to complete. That was uh, when you did you rode your motorcycle all the way to Patagonia, right? I, I rode my motorcycle to Patagonia when I was twenty three years old uh, from Colorado. Um, I have this tendency, this need to. To, to do things a little bit differently. I'd gotten into a study abroad program in Valparaiso, Chile, in uh-huh. uh, central Chile. I've been and, there. Uh, you have? Well, my wife is from Alaska, okay. but her mother is Chilean okay. from Santiago, but I've been to Valparaiso and yeah. then some of the coastal towns around there. Yeah, it's incredibly beautiful. Yeah. And so I'd gotten into this study abroad program and and just living in or being being in school in Boulder, Colorado for, uh-huh. uh, you know, however many years you, you get the college students coming back and mm-hmm. from their study abroad program. And and I was just kind of hearing the same stories over and over and over again. And I'm like, all right, I'm going to do study abroad, but I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to ride my motorcycle yeah. there. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so this was a full 10 years later, I wanted to complete the two continents. So I rode my motorcycle mm-hmm. up to Alaska. To Alaska. And then ran the uh, Mount Marathon race up there, which is uh, uh, part of the reason that I 
I don't race all that much anymore is because that race I consider to be the best out of any race that I've ever done. Really? Pretty much in the world. Why is that? Um, it's dangerous. It doesn't have a set course. It's extremely competitive. It's got a lot of history. Um, there's... Uh, equal emphasis on the men as there is on the women um, Mm. and on the juniors for that matter. Um, And it's just a, it's an incredibly huge celebration of who we are as Americans and who we are as athletes. It's really something That's else. Cool. And it all happens so nothing in five can, kilometers. Nothing can match that. So you're just not. It's hard. I don't yeah. know how to say it. It's like, it's hard. It's like, I love, I appreciate all of the races out there. I appreciate that there's these races and I appreciate that, um, that people have something on their calendar to, to train for and to look forward to. Um, but after running up and down a mountain in Alaska, like the idea of training to run you know, this contrived route around a bunch of ski trails on a ski mountain, because that's the only place that we can get a permit to run a race here in the lower 48. Um, it just doesn't do a whole lot for me. Um, like I said, I, I, it, uh, I'm glad that they exist. Um, but I, I need something substantive to, to kind of feed, my my desire to race. Yeah, what's the point? I mean, there's always somebody doing something crazier too. Mm-hmm. Like how many times can you run the bad water course in a row or totally. you know, the seven marathons on seven continents and these are expensive affairs mm-hmm. and your whole thing is like that's great, but let's strip it away and we're, and find the meaning in all of this. And the meaning yep. comes in those human connections that you have by just being in your backyard. Yeah. Like it doesn't need to be more complicated. Than right. Yeah. One of the things we didn't talk about is the fact that you lived in Antarctica for a while. Yeah. <laughs> it was a while ago though, right? When, when, how old were you when you were there? Uh, that was about, that was right when uh, Liz and I started dating. So that uh-huh. was uh, maybe nine years ago. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm lucky she's still in my life. I, I left frequently for several months at a time. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, so, you're just, this is who you are. Yeah. And so this was, uh, like Ant- I, I had read which book, I mean, every, everyone that's been to Antarctica has one book that spoke to them more than the others. And for uh-huh. a lot of people that books endurance and other people, it's another book. And for me, it was this book called the worst journey in the world. And mm-hmm. you would think that would, uh, have the opposite effect. Right. Instead, this magnetizes you. Completely. And so this was uh, a journey in 1906 or 1907. Um, and it was it was the Scott journey where he ended up going to the South Pole and dying on the way back. This was written by uh, the youngest person on his team that stayed at camp. And so, um, and so he was there in Antarctica for right. two years. I'm like, I, I got to go. Two years. Yeah. And yeah, two very long winters. Um, and so an ex-girlfriend of mine, her ex-boyfriend uh, worked in Antarctica and I just asked him like, how do, how do I get a job there? And he says, yeah, what sort of skills? Go. You can't just go no. to the South Pole. Yeah, unless you got a lot of money. And then you, even then you still can't stay for that long. Uh-huh. Um, and so he's like, so what, what sort of skills do you have? And I'm like, I don't know. Uh, he's like, carpentry? I'm like, nope. He's like, kitchen? I'm like, sorta. He's like, 
dishwashing? And I'm like, I can wash dishes. Uh-huh. And so that's what I did. I went, I, wow. it's the, the hardest job I've ever gotten in terms of interviews and, and physicals and all of these things. Wow. Uh, but yeah, I, I got a job at the South Pole. I was on the first airplane to go there for that season. It was October 12th, um, must've been 2009 or 2010 and stuck around there for four months, washing dishes, six days a week, 10 hours a day. Um, ran two races while I was there. That was a huge part of the reason that I wanted to go. There's a race called the Race Around the World, which takes place on Christmas Day um, ever since the 1970s. And it's a two and a half mile race that goes around the station and right. and uh, and pretty much everybody participates, whether on foot or on snowmobile or on snow bikes or, or whatever it is. Some people tow couches behind the snowmobiles. Uh, uh-huh. it's, it's just a parade around the station. It's an right. excuse for everybody to get out. Didn't you um, create a new course though? I did, yeah. And so when I arrived there, they were doing three laps, uh, three, like three quarter mile laps around the station. And I'm like, but the station's so much bigger than that. Like, how come we don't go out to that you know, station or that uh, building or that building or out to the berms or out to those you know, the, the ice tunnels out there. And the woman that I asked about it, she handed me a map of the station and said, go ahead, right, <laughs> design it. the course. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so I designed a new course there. Um, Just one broader. One loop. big, one big loop. And it was awesome. It, mm. it, you, you know, it went all around the station. Really cool. Every time zone. Every time zone. Yeah. And then uh, the winner of that race, you, uh, the 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 award for the man and the women that win the race is that you get a free trip to the edge of the continent to McMurdo Station in order to compete in the marathon there, which is again only open to employees and it's they usually get maybe forty or fifty people to run it. And on the day before that we're supposed to fly to McMurdo, me and this gal, uh, they canceled our flight. Um, and it was just weather, just, just, no, it wasn't. It was bureaucracy. They had, they had, uh, they didn't need to any shipments to the South pole or vice versa. Mm -hmm. So they, uh, they just canceled the flight. Like we're not, we're not a priority. The two, uh, skinny kitchen staff runners wanting to run the marathon, uh, on the coast uh, was not enough of a priority. So we, uh, enlisted the help of a couple surveyors at the South Pole Station, and we designed our own uh, marathon course there at the South Pole Station, which was, again, one lap of what we had done, about two and a half miles, and then out to the the ice runway, which is two and a half miles long. Mm. And we did five laps up and down the ice runway uh, for Just hands you and, down. and one woman? Uh, we ended up getting, I think six or seven people started and four people ran the marathon from what I've been told, uh, it's still going to this day. And I think they get like 15 to 20 people competing in the marathon for hands down, quite possibly the most boring marathon course (laughs) in the world. (laughs) Definitely not the easiest. They should call it the Ricky Gates marathon. (laughs) Um, that's amazing. So what are we looking at? Like minus 20 my like what is the temperature range it was when i did that it was mine it was about the the wind chill was minus 40 and that was going one direction in the other direction it was probably more like minus 60 because you're going with the wind and then against the wind how do you even gear up for that a lot of layers 
Yeah, a whole lot of layers. I had uh, big, uh, just like these guys, big earphones uh, plugged into what was back then an iPod. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just remember this one funny part, like, and and huge mittens with uh, glove warmers in there. Um, I had my iPod on album shuffle and... uh, and I can't remember which album it was, maybe his greatest hits, but Frank Sinatra's greatest hits coming on. Oh my God. <laughs> and knowing so now that for if, the rest of your life, if yeah, you hear Frank Sinatra, you're exactly think of that experience. Straight right? there. And it was just I I know that it was too cold for me to take my the the iPod out because it would have right. frozen immediately and then I would have been without any music. So wow. I think I'm one of the few people that have listened to an entire Frank Sinatra album <laughs> while running a marathon. <laughs> I don't know. There's probably a few others. Yeah. But I had um, Colin O'Brady in here sharing about his solo adventure across Antarctica, pulling that sled. And he was saying that he had to be very careful about how he expended himself. Like you have to create momentum to pull that sled, but if he overexerted himself or went too hard um, and started to sweat, like sweat is death. Like you can't sweat. So how do you run a marathon with all these layers on and avoid that death-defying pitfall. Yeah, well, you can't run very fast, that's for sure. I uh-huh. ran, I think I ran 405. Um, and it's it, it, there's no doubt about it, it's a delicate balance. Um, his situation was vastly different than mine. If I went into death zone, then I just ran into the galley mm-hmm. and got some hot chocolate. <laughs> right. He didn't have that opportunity. Right. But but, yeah, I, but as soon as you start sweating, it freezes immediately. Totally. Right? And it was fascinating. Like, and that's when I experienced it the most was during that marathon was taking my jacket off and there was actual, um, like snow. It's, it's called hoar, H-O-A-R, inside, uh, your jacket, just all of this frozen, wow. uh, moisture. And, uh, yeah, it's not something that you want uh, to, to happen if you're, if you're out there for multiple days Uh or even like a a really long day. Yeah. Yeah. It's deadly. So what was the idea going to Antarctica? Like, what were you trying to learn? And did, did, did that experience satisfy that? Totally. It was two different things. I, I think that there's no place on earth that's more like a different planet than Antarctica. Um, so for me, it was like, if I wanted to ever go to space, this was my opportunity to go to space. Um, and then the other part is is meeting and talking to all of the people there that were equally as interested in going to this other planet as me. Uh-huh. Um, it's just kind of funny. The uh, everybody it seems like everybody goes down there with a copy of Dune. And because and then when you get there, it feels very much yeah. like this desert, like it's the driest uh-huh. place on earth. It's 10,000 feet. The South Pole's at 10,000 feet. It's pancake flat. Mm. There's a, like, without the stations there, you're like human beings can't exist. There's no life form at the South Pole with the exception of humans. Yeah. I remember we got our, our fruits and vegetables in from uh, New Zealand uh, at one point, and there was a ladybug and the lettuce. And the ladybug went straight into a jar and, and it was the station pet for the next uh-huh. three months. It was incredible. Wow. Yeah. And everybody visited the ladybug yeah. that was down in the little greenhouse. Um, but it's just an interesting uh, assortment of people. You get a lot of people like myself who are travelers and they want to uh, visit the world. You get some 
some old crusty Antarctica people that are, uh, you know, lifelong employees to the program. And then you get a few uh, blue collar people as well, um, you know, working for the contract company. Back then right. it was Raytheon, back then it was Raytheon. And now, I don't know if this is still current day, but it's uh, Halliburton now, so is huge. Really? What are they studying down there? Um, they're studying things very, very big and very, very small. So they're studying neutrinos. This is the Ice Cube program. Um, and so this is uh, a really amazing uh, scientific experiment where they've drilled 80 or so holes into the ice plateau and, and put these little detectors, DOMs, uh, into the ice uh, that can actually detect when a neutron collides, a neutrino collides with the nucleus of an atom and creates a small explosion. Whoa. And so that's uh, that's the things that are really, really small. So these are, uh, they're actually capturing this explosion. The neutri neutrino goes through the planet Earth and then collides on the opposite side. So that's how small they are. Wow. Yeah, it's hard for me to really that's, even yeah, like, comprehend I even, this. I, yeah. even, I, I can't even totally. begin to understand the, what that's yeah. about. But. And I had like several different people uh, dumb that down for me in a lot of different ways. And that's that's the best way that I understood that. Uh -huh. And so then they've also got uh, some incredible uh, telescopes uh, looking deep into outer space uh, for dark matter. And then uh, it being the cleanest air, supposedly the cleanest air on planet Earth, um, they also study air quality. NOAA is there uh, with a station. Wow. Um, the stars at night had to be unbelievable. There was no, so when I was there, I was there for the summertime. Uh, I watched the sun revolve around right, in the so sky no, for four months straight. Right. You, no, yep. no I never, Yeah, I never saw the How darkness. How does that fuck with you? Uh, I had a room uh, with no windows in it, and I simply put it into my head that when I was going into my room, it was nighttime. Yeah. And so you'd stick to a schedule. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Wow, yeah. man. Yeah. Also, don't they like drill these ice cores and pull them out and they're like time machines, right? Because they literally, they're so layered. Yeah, like you're a tree, going- Like the rings of a tree, like you can go back in time. 170,000 years is right. how far you're going back when you're going- uh, that far deep into the ice and so you're looking you're looking at explosion uh volcanic explosions right yeah it's really incredible one of the things i was reading about was with the the um receding water levels and the melting of of the ice caps is that it starts to expose like this um water and ultimately vapor from so long ago and mm -hmm. they don't know what's in that like there could yeah. be viruses and bacteria that mm haven't been on earth for hundreds of thousands of years. Totally. That could create all yeah, kinds yeah. of <laughs> strange sci-fi movies yeah, yeah. type situations. Yeah. That's a trip though, man. Yeah. So how do you, now you're, you're married, you're working on these books, yeah. um, but you're a creature of wanderlust. Like what's, mm -hmm. what's next and how do you satisfy that itch? And what are you yeah, looking so at now? I'm still coming up with uh, more projects. The project that I have right now that I'm most excited about, which is going to take me a couple years, uh, at least two years, um, I'm calling the 50 Classic Trails of North America. Um, and this is kind of purely up to me. This is uh -huh. sort of based off of a book from the 1970s called The 50 Classic uh, Climbing Ascents of North America. And uh, where these two rock climbers went around uh, Canada, Mexico, 
United States and, and found these just totally iconic uh, rock climbs, some of which have only been done one time. Um, so for me, this is, uh, I want it to be a little bit more attainable to the general public, but I do want it to be uh, something that uh, a runner uh, can strive for. Mm. So the the parameters for this are that I can tell somebody with confidence that this trail is worth traveling to and, and making uh, a weekend or a week out of it. Um, another parameter is that it needs to be done in, in 24 hours by the uh -huh. fastest runners or hikers. I'm, I'm, I'm tentative of about calling it a running specific book. Um, and then that it really covers all ecosystems. Um, so I'm not going to go through all 50 of them, but just a few of them. Uh, there's a couple obvious ones. The the rim to rim to rim in the Grand Canyon is is an all-time classic uh -huh. and, and needs to be included. The Lost Coast in Northern California, uh, 40, 50 mile point-to-point uh, -point run through the uh, most uninterrupted coastline in the lower 48. Um, the one that I've done most recently up in Alaska, the Chilkoot Trail, um, going from Skagway up into uh, British Columbia, which was used for a couple years for uh, the the gold rush uh, to get people into the Yukon. Uh -huh. uh, but then they built a, uh, a railroad which which bypassed it. But it's a 30, I want to say a 32-mile or 34-mile point-to-point run, which goes from this incredible... Uh, coastal jungle, essentially, uh, up into this high country and then down into a much more arid wow. uh, um, Canadian landscape. Um, so the idea is to kind of, uh, a, a few different things, look at a bunch of different ecosystems, uh, provide people with uh, hopefully some inspiration to, to check out some new terrain, mm -hmm. um, illuminate some, some human history, uh, ideally, there's a bit of human history with each of these trails, and uh, and really provide something. Uh, I, I call it running beyond the bib, uh, yeah. providing people with inspiration to to do a trail that's not necessarily a race, right? And to give them a goal that isn't necessarily a, an FKT or a record, but uh, you know something that uh, that they can look at and and feel like they, they can accomplish. And this is a book that you're doing? It'll be book. Uh, but but like, like, a, like an art book, like visual, very visual. Totally. And, yeah. yeah. So this will be book, website, and uh -huh. uh, ideally one minute long per trail, uh, little video Videos. segments. Yeah. Like Atlas Obscura for trail Yeah, riding. totally. Yeah. That's yep. pretty cool. I yeah, like yeah. that. I got to get that guy to to help illustrate. Um, I like his illustrations. You have a lot going on. Yeah. You have, like like it's it's cool. I just I think I just what I really connect with about what you're you're about is just is the sharing part. Mm. You know, like how you're taking this thing that you love and and creating like tactile objects and inspiring people to, you know, infuse their lives with the things that have brought so much meaning to you. It's really cool. Yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah. It's uh I I hope that it uh I hope that it reaches people out there. I, I know that I, I constantly need um, the things in my life to evolve. And I don't need to change those things necessarily or, or like switch out running for 
um, whatever skydiving or something, uh-huh. but I do need for 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 it to evolve uh, to to help me with who I am today and who yeah. I'm becoming tomorrow. Well, cool, man. I think that's a good place to <laughs> end it. Um, super amazing. Thank you for sharing today. Uh, Transamericana coming to a film festival near you and hopefully a digital platform at some point. I was very moved by it. You guys did an amazing job on that movie. So congratulations on that. I can't wait for people to see it and enjoy it. Thanks so much. Yeah. And what's the book and gonna the bo- be called? The book is gonna be called Cross Country uh-huh. and it's being published by Chronicle Books out of San Francisco. And that'll also be out in April. In April, cool. Yeah. And rickygates.com. Yeah. Definitely go to his website. Like it's, re- it's a cool experience to just get lost in all the content there. It's very cool. And uh, you're an easy guy to find on social media too. <laughs> um, amazing photographer as well. So definitely subscribe to your, your uh, Instagram page, Ricky Gates as well. Awesome. Anything else? Uh, that's about it. I hope to share the trails with, with people. Uh, um, hut run hut, bus run bus. I, I, uh, I love providing these experiences and sharing them. Uh, with others, so cool, man. Yeah, I want to go on one of those. Trips. Please do. Uh, yeah. yeah, you and I have a mutual friend, Heidi Zuckerman. Oh, you know Heidi. That's yeah. right from Aspen. Totally. Oh my goodness. And she was interested in uh, in a hut run hut, and and uh, I'm still working on her. Oh so. wow. Yeah. Well, I want to go irrespective, but if yeah. Heidi's going, I would love to be able to to join her at the same time. That yeah. would be really fun. Yeah. Um, she just left the the museum in Aspen, didn't she? She did. She's she go back to New York. Uh, I don't know where she's gone, um, but I, I think she's, I, I don't doubt that there's a little bit of finding herself right now. Uh-huh. Uh, that's, that's, uh, must be very exciting. She was at the Aspen Art Museum for 14 years yeah, for and, and created a really incredible, uh, program there, new building. Um, it's, uh, I can say this as a person that was born and raised in Aspen that like sh- sh- her, impact has changed the face of the town for the better mm. and the uh and deeply cultural yeah she's a very cool person so hey heidi i'm sure you're listening <laughs> she might be listening mm. anyway um cool man well to be continued and and again i just want to extend an invite for you to come back and talk about the book when when that's coming out and cool. maybe we can go on a run that time too awesome all right sounds great right. Thanks, thanks so much Ricky. Rich. good talking to you peace How beautiful and awesome is that human being? I love that guy. I adore that conversation. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Please hit up Ricky on the socials and let him know directly what you thought of today's conversation. He's at Ricky Gates on Twitter and on Instagram. And please be sure to check out the show notes on the episode page to learn more. And please, please pre-order his book, Cross Country at rickygates.com. If you'd like to support the work we do here on the show, subscribe, rate, and comment on it on Apple Podcasts. Share the show on social media and with your friends. Subscribe to my YouTube channel. Hit that subscribe button on Spotify, Google Podcasts, wherever you listen to the program. And you can support us on Patreon at richroll.com forward slash donate. I appreciate all the hard work that my team puts into putting on the show every week. Jason Camillo for audio engineering, production, show notes, and interstitial music. Blake Curtis and Margot Lubin for videoing and editing the visual version of the program. Jessica Miranda for graphics. Allie Rogers for portraits. DK for advertiser relationships and theme music by Analemma. Appreciate all you guys. I don't take your attention for granted. I am here only because of you guys. So I'll see you back here next week with Chef 
Ileana Regan. It's a beautiful conversation. I think you guys are gonna enjoy it and I'll take you out with a clip. Until then, peace, plants, namaste. That is what I do and that's what I love to do and it's a expression of myself and I love cooking and, um, you know, but it's really more than that because I love the storytelling of the cooking, like gathering our ingredients and growing things and that's a big part of where we're going with our um, property in the Upper Peninsula in Michigan is to make it just feel a little bit more holistic and... Um, I just want to feel, I, I guess, better about it. And I think that a lot of people look at like chefs and and my industry as being kind of glamorous, but it doesn't yeah. feel like that, at least not for me, not on a daily basis. Yeah.